SpaceX, uh, getting these two Americans into the space shuttle for the first time since 2011. And the difference is that before it was NASA, and now it's the private sector that's doing it. In the same way that Akon is kind of privatizing city management, and SpaceX is privatizing space exploration, there is a big question that we need to ask ourselves about the roles of corporations in our lives, and, and also what does that mean for our future in terms of exploring this new asset of space, or how to build cities that can be equitable. Welcome back to the Global Startup Movement, where every week we bring you conversations, insights, and innovation highlights from emerging entrepreneurial ecosystems all over the world. I'm your host, Andrew Berkowitz. Thank you so much for joining us. Today, I am joined by Omar Christidis, who is the CEO and founder of ArabNet, a digital media venture with the goal of spearheading the Arab web and mobile movement and encouraging its expansion worldwide. Founded about a decade ago now, ArabNet is the first platform of its kind that targets the startup scene by bringing together private corporations, government entities, investors, and nonprofit organizations in the Middle East region. Omar, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So why don't we just start this off back in 2010. Uh, Tell us a little bit about how this all got started. Uh, Where was the startup scene back then, if there even was a startup scene in the region? Um, And then we'll go from there. Sure. So it's, you know, it's funny because this, the situation that I started ArabNet in kind of mirrors the current crisis that we're going to, or, or it was a, a direct impact of the last major global crisis. I, I grew up in Beirut. I moved to the U.S. Uh, when I was 17. I did my undergrad and my MBA at Yale. And I was working in New York, a freshly minted MBA in the world of finance at, at a private wealth uh, management office, a family office. And uh, 2008, the crisis hits in the fall of 2008. I lost my job. I spent all my money trying to stay in New York City, trying to find another job, anything. But by the spring of 2009, I had spent all my savings and I packed my bags and moved back to Beirut, which was home. I knew that I had a passion for the world of startups. I was trying to get out of uh, the world of finance and into technology. I had a passion for tech. And I I had a a belief in 2007, 2008, that technology was going to transform everything about the world, the way we communicate, the way we work, uh, and everything in between. And so I I wanted to move into that world. And when I moved back to the region, I started actually applying for jobs. I applied for a, a job with Google, which I got rejected from. And sometimes I think it was a you know, an amazing, you know, stroke of luck that I, I didn't end up working and, and not ever starting this company. And as I was looking for a job, I started to realize there was so little information around, you know, what, who are the companies operating in this space? Were there startups? Were there investors? What, what was going on? And I thought, you know, I should really go to a conference to try to meet people. And when I dug around, I found there was not really a conference for, for digital innovation, for the startup uh, industry. There were tech events for IT and IT sales, and but the kind of digital, and at the time, maybe Web 2.0, maybe we just passed that, that, that verbiage at the time, there wasn't anything, any conference for that market. Uh, happened to be that my mother is, has been in the conference business for a decade before that. She's an entrepreneur herself. And I came to her and I said, you know, there's no conference for this industry. This industry is going to be massive in the future. This is the future we should start the first conference for this industry. And while she was uh, much less uh, technology forward than me, she's bought into the vision. And 
we decided to work together. So my co-founder is actually my mother. Mm. Um, and we, we started the company together in 2000, the fall of 2009, I had six months after I had moved back to Lebanon. And I said, you know, sure, let's do this, but I don't know anyone. I just moved back. And she said, sure, it's okay. We can do it six months from now. And I said, that's impossible. And she said, no, don't worry, just go. And so I got on a, uh, you know, I got in a car and I essentially traveled around the region to start to build a startup movement. Twitter in the early days, of, uh, you know, in those days was a much smaller community of Twitter users. Many of them were very much tech involved in tech enthusiasts. And I was very active. And so I started connecting with all these people in different countries. In the spring of 2010, in January, I got in a car and I traveled from Beirut to Damascus. And I held a tweet up there and from Damascus to Amman and Jordan, where I also held a tweet up and, and met all these different people. I met Fadi Randur, who is the founder of Aramex and I would say the first super angel in the Middle East and one of the backers of the first major acquisitions. The context and backdrop of this was that Yahoo had just acquired Maktoub, the region's largest uh, lang Arabic language website and email operator, for something to the tune of $160 million. It was the first major deal where you could say, this is an industry where people are making money. This is not like these newfangled ideas, right? This is people are making money in this new web business. Mm. And I, I met Fadi for the first time in Amman, and uh, he was the first person who wrote us a sponsorship check. And, you know, we'll forever be grateful for that. It's amazing how you remember those moments. I had a little black book. I wrote the name of everybody that I met. I asked each person to introduce me to three people. And by the end of the six-month period, I started getting repeat names. I started getting an understanding of who everyone was. I had taken a trip to Silicon Valley uh, six months before, and I had met some people there from the Arab community, and I convinced them to fly back to the Middle East for this first conference. Facebook didn't have an office in the region, uh, so I convinced the head of Facebook International at the time. He was a Le Lebanese guy, so he flew in. Uh, George Harit, who was one of the first 10 employees at Google and was an angel investor, actively convinced him to fly out. And in 2010, in the spring of 2010, we held the first ArabNet conference. And I would say it was, it was a watershed event because it was the first time this industry recognized itself as an industry. It was the first time that these people from all this, the tech enthusiasts were meeting face-to-face for, -face for the first time. Um, the first startup pitch competition uh, to ever take place, where people were not, you know, where pit, they had five minutes to pitch to a, a bunch of uh, investors. That was uh, the first time that it ever happened was at the first Arabnet event. We had an idea phase competition called the Ideathon. We had a, a, a startup uh, phase competition, the startup demo. And, and since then, honestly, it, the first event was a tremendous success, and the industry has grown tremendously since then, and we've grown with the, the growth of the industry. Um, we grew from one conference in Beirut in 2010. 2012, we kickstarted an annual event in Saudi Arabia. In 2013, in, in uh, UAE. In 2016, in Kuwait. Um, we started our own media platform where we were writing news and analysis about the web and mobile industry which eventually turned into a magazine and then into research and insights, reports and publications. We issued the first ever research report on uh, investment in tech startups in the Middle East. We went out to every tech investor that we knew, gathered all of the data and produced the first comprehensive report that said, this is how many deals happened. This is how much money. This is what kind of startups. And then since then have been talking about, this is the percentage of female founders. This is the number of the percentage of companies closed down. This is how countries have gone up and down in the rankings. 
And we've issued four uh, editions of that report since then. There's just so many parallels between your story and our story. Like it seems like, you know, you realize early on that, you know, what, what you're doing and what we're doing, it's performing a very key network mapping role. And you're, you're really aggregating and bringing, bringing visibility into who are the key players in all the different countries. And that really accelerates an ecosystem because all the players coming in, foreign investors, young people in the countries, they're able to much quicker identify, you know, here's who I need to pitch. Here's how I need to uh, approach customers. Um, I think so that's the first thing. And then the second thing is what you did. And I will, I want, I want to know more about what exactly a tweet up is and how you actually, uh, how you actually went about that. Um, but what you did is you established your, your minimum viable audience and then built out from there. And that's exactly what we, what we did with our shows as well. But yeah, tell, tell us about, tell us about this, this tweet up concept. I'm curious. Well, a tweet up, I, this was something that was actually quite, uh, popular in the earlier days of Twitter. So they were just simply small community events where Twitter users who, interacted with each other a lot online, had a chance to meet offline in person. Got it. And so I knew a lot of these techies. I followed them. They followed me. We engaged, we commented, and then I had the chance to be in their city. And so would have a tweet up and they would all come and meet face to face. And of course, tweet ups were happening already locally. I just kind of joined in. At the time I came in and I organized tweet ups for the purpose of telling them about the first ever tech conference and getting them to, to come and you know, the first year we had buses that carried, that bussed people from Amman and, and, and Damascus over hundreds of kilometers out to, to Beirut for the conference. So that's, that's what a tweet up is. Got it. And so when, when you say, so you expanded first, you said to Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia uh, then Kuwait. Um, and so as, as you expanded across the region, I mean, is there any insight there into, you know, how the region has evolved or was it just, that was just kind of a natural um, you, you know, or w- was there any, I guess my question is, was there any rhyme and reason to that expansion, those expansion steps? Sure. So it actually, we went from here to Saudi Arabia first. And for us, because Saudi Arabia has the largest market in the region, uh, the largest purchasing power, the, you know, significant consumer base, you know, the second largest after Egypt, um, the largest corporate buyers in terms of B2B digital services. So we felt like that was a really important market for us to be in. The second market after that was the UAE, so Dubai, which was the the you know the center of business in the region, where a lot of the, the headquarters and regional offices are for agencies and global companies. So of course it made sense for us to be there as well. And then the last place was Kuwait, and that's because we felt that there was actually a lot of startup momentum there. The government launched one of the first large-scale programs to support startups. It was a $7 billion Kuwait National Fund for SME Development. And uh, we had just seen the acquisition of Carriage and Talabat, uh, two companies from Kuwait that were each acquired for something to the tune of $150 million. And so we thought, there's, there's something really interesting happening there. But from our expansion, I'll tell you one of the, the things that I learned is how fragmented the Middle East is and how much of a barrier it is for startup scaling. Um, we often talk about the Middle East market as, you know, a singular market. You can access 300 million people, all Arabic speaking. And that's what we, we pitch the idea. And startups pitch that idea as well when they're talking about their potential market opportunity. The reality is that our market is actually very fragmented. Uh, there are borders. And that means for e-commerce companies and companies with physical goods, 
That means customs. That means uh, taxes. That means logistics requirements that are complicated. Um, for companies that sell uh, content, well, we actually have quite a diverse cultures around the region. What's funny in Saudi is totally different than what might be funny in Egypt or in Lebanon. Uh, the dialects are different, the cultural expression and norms. And so even writing content for the region as a whole, not as easy as it might sound originally. So I think startups have a really challenging, uh, or it's a big challenge for startups operating in the Middle East to effectively scale. And this is one of the things I think that governments can really do to support startups, not just now in this in these difficult times, but it was something that I was pushing for in my conversations with government leaders before, the idea of harmonizing regulatory regimes so that a um, an e-commerce startup can effectively scale, a fintech startup can effectively scale across the region. Mm. And and so, yeah, let's, let's dive a little bit deeper into that. I mean, the role of, of governments and, and government programs in the region. Now, it's, it's, it's interesting for us as we've expanded our media globally. We were very, very deep into sub-Saharan Africa for, for the first couple of years. But as, as I started to look over into, you know, countries like Kuwait and Bahrain, it seriously surprised me the, the, uh, GDP per capita, like, like how, how rich some of these countries are. It's, it's not on our radar here in the West. It's not here. It's not really shown in the media here. Um, so it was really surprising for me to really learn how, how wealthy some of these, these, these public sectors are in these, in these regions. But that, I guess that also, also shows the importance of these government programs in supporting startups. Absolutely. So the, the Middle East region and specifically, let's talk about the, the Gulf region, right? The oil, right? Countries where there's a lot of oil. And those countries have a, a tremendous amount of sovereign wealth that is being either kind of spent out through government programs and fiscal programs, or a lot of com- countries have these very large sovereign wealth funds. And of course, Abu Dhabi, Adio, Abu Dhabi Investment Office, one of the Mubadala are some of the largest ones, uh, Quet Investment Authority, one of the largest. And these guys have been operating for decades and investing in top tier Silicon Valley uh, VCs, their LPs and some of the world's leading VCs, and they've been investing the oil money for a long time. But uh, the reality is that uh, in the last, I would say, five years, there's been a shift in the thinking of, of governments in the GCC and a realization that, that that oil money is really running out. running out. We are nearing peak oil. If it's not running out, it cannot be a sustainable base for the future of their economies. And so... Uh, at the time, we saw uh, uh, SMEs emerged as the potential new driver of Arab economies. And so we saw this flurry of interest in government programs to support SMEs and startups. Part of the SME uh, work was going towards specifically tech startups and the innovation ecosystem. And I would say I can talk about a few programs that have launched that, that demonstrate this. The first was in Lebanon, Circular 331 of the Central Bank of Lebanon, which was a program to stimulate venture capital, where the central bank would guarantee or de-risk 75% of investments made by commercial banks into venture capital funds, right? Mm. So that means these VCs could now go to commercial banks, raise money from them, and the central bank would guarantee that on the downside, 75% of that loss. And so we had a flurry of venture capital 
uh, funds that launched in the country and a tremendous amount of investments. Lebanon shot up, according to our reports, from fifth place to second place in terms of number of deals and dollars invested uh, across the region as a result of Circular 331. Um, the, the interesting thing about that program particularly is that the government did it at an arm's length, right? So the government de-risked investments by the private sector into venture capital. The second program that was launched became um, the Quet National Fund for SME Development. That was a much larger fund. The Lebanese program initially was $400 million of subsidized uh, investments. Uh, Quet National Fund was launched with 2 billion Kuwaiti dinars, or about $7 billion, for all sorts of programs. Now, that program started initially to be an operator. So they wanted to run their own accelerators, their own co-working, their own. They were building a large team, a large like government entity. And the program went through a lot of challenges. There was a lot of changes in leadership, a lot of changes in the board, um, and has been, you know, it is still trying to work out how to deliver the most impact for the startups in, in Kuwait. Yeah. Um, after that, we saw the launch of, a, of the SME authority in Saudi Arabia and contextualize that. We can talk about Saudi Arabia for, for, for a good chunk because uh, of the Saudi National Transformation Plan, Vision 2030, and what that means for a country that is being led by a millennial leader who is today one a large LP in, in venture capital and believes that technology is a huge transformative force. But the most recent flurry of activity, I'll kind of to wrap this thinking up, you can see large investments now in countries who want to start to really ignite their startup ecosystems. Most recent investments have been fund of fund structures. So similar to what Lebanon did, um, Bahrain launched a fund of funds where they were, they're essentially encouraging VCs who want to open up shop to open up in Bahrain and to get funding from the government as a potential anchor investor. Uh, after that, the Jordanians launched the uh, Innovative Startups Fund. Abu Dhabi launched Hub 71 and a program of the fund of fund structure there. Saudi Arabia launched two fund of fund structures, the Saudi Venture Capital Company and Jada. So there is currently a lot of opportunities for fund managers who are interested to invest in MENA to get anchor investment as anchor LP investors from sovereigns in the Middle East. And I expect this to actually uh, continue in the, in the short to medium term. Uh, as the government leaders that I've talked to are still writing checks. Uh, they are still looking to encourage more, v more VCs to come into these markets. Uh, we've already seen a lot of interest from global VCs to establish operations in the Middle East. So I think this is going to be a big transformative force in, in the region's uh, ecosystem. Yeah. And I think that fund to fund structure is, is the best way for governments to actually contribute. I mean, I just, I'm very skeptical. I'm very, I'll say pessimistic on governments actually acting themselves as VCs or acting themselves as, as, um, you know, running accelerator and incubator programs. So, okay. So you mentioned we can go deep on Saudi Arabia. I will, I would love to do that. I, I don't know that much. I mean, beyond Ridia is, are there any, like I know specifically in North Africa, each country really only has one, you know, central tech hub. And that's the case for most, I mean, most African countries, most Middle East countries. But is there anything beyond Rydia? Or like, like does, does, does Saudi Arabia have multiple ecosystems or is it, is it all concentrated there? So, so Riyadh is, is definitely the, the center of the ecosystem in Saudi Arabia today. But I think this would be less about technology in particular and more about a country transforming itself. Mm. Right. So the, the Prince Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince there, has been the largest transformative force in the, in the 
modern history of the country. Um, and in many ways, uh, across the board, economic, political, social, uh, some of the social things he's done are, are incredible. And while they may sound uh, harsh to a, a Western ear in terms of things that a Westerner might consider things that people should take for granted, they were things that, that he was able to change in the country after many years. So we're talking about women being able to drive. Uh, we're talking about the opening up of the entertainment industry in Saudi Arabia, concerts. Uh, we're talking about the removal of male-only parts of restaurants and gender segregation within the country. Um, so that's been hugely transformative, and he's deeply loved in Saudi Arabia for many of those transformations that he's made. But it's not only that. He has preached the uh, the shift of the country away from reliance on oil towards building a new economy based on entrepreneurship and technology. He's been working, there's a massive quality of life program that's been really working to improve the quality of life. They want to build Saudi Arabia as a tourist destination. Now, um, the startups and technology absolutely play a big role in this on multiple levels. Uh, the Saudi government is a big investor in the vision fund of uh, SoftBank and has the country has direct has made a lot of investments through that in a lot of global tech. Whoops. Uh, well, look, I think that the direction uh, in terms of investing in tech is the right direction. Building the, the, the new economy, so setting up entities like the SME Authority uh, to support SMEs, which has been doing a tremendous amount, whether it's training, whether it's, you know, loan access. And, you know, part of the SME Authority is these, these Saudi venture capital company or a sister company to that. So the fund of funds are part of this broader architecture and strategy of the government. There is a national transformation program, which is really driving government digitization. There are also huge opportunities to be part of that digital transformation of the country and the economy and the, the government. Right. Uh, they launched Neom, which is uh, a futuristic city that, uh, that they would like to build that's going to be powered by artificial intelligence, robotics, um, and future technology, uh, renewable energy. Uh, they've set up an artificial intelligence and data authority to uh, to play a leadership role there. And this is something as well that the UAE has done. They set up, they had the first Ministry of Artificial Intelligence. So I believe a lot of these countries today are seeing technology and innovation as an opportunity to leapfrog in terms of economic development. Right. And that's super interesting. Has the concept of charter cities gained gain a lot of traction in the region? Like I have a friend here, um, his name's Mark Letter. He has a, a think tank here that's all about creating a framework for charter cities around the world. And the, the concept is actually getting a lot of traction in Africa, a lot of traction in South America. I would imagine that a lot of Middle Eastern and like Gulf region countries are pretty ripe for that concept. So is that are you seeing that concept getting a lot of traction in the region? I'm not sure what exactly you mean by charter city, if you could just... I mean, charter city is basically a you, you start com from complete scratch on creating a policy framework, creating a, essentially a city from the ground up where you can, where a country basically can start over. Is this what Google was trying to do in Seattle with like pavement or something like this? <sighs> with sidewalk labs? I right, mean, sidewalk yeah. labs, Toronto, not Seattle, Toronto. Right. Yeah, it was in Toronto. Uh, I mean, I know that project was shut down. I wouldn't call that, I wouldn't necessarily call that a charter city. Um, so there's one, I'm looking up right now, there's one in Zambia that is is going on that is currently underway. Understood. So I think that in Egypt, they've done this, right? They launched new Cairo, new administrative capital for Cairo, and they're building a city essentially 
a smart city from scratch where they can build infrastructure from scratch and policies, et cetera. Right. Yeah. We have seen it uh, a couple of times in the region. Cairo is one, or Egypt. Uh, Neom is another in Saudi Arabia, but this is not the first one in Saudi Arabia. Uh, there's a number of kind of economic zones, and that's that's been a huge thing, not just cities, but economic zones, special economic zones uh, for certain industries or certain um, where they have certain uh, tax benefits and things like this. And even within the UAE today, if you go to Dubai, there's Dubai Media City and uh, Dubai Radio City. And and in each of these free zones, they have clusters. And this, this idea of leveraging clusters for economic development is what a lot of these things are built on. They are They have been quite popular in the Middle East. Not all have been successful. Um, I think there's a lot of challenges with building a city from, from scratch when you have large, you know, cities already that, are, that need a lot of investment in infrastructure. But I think they also provide opportunity for you to build from a new blueprint and, and to be able to potentially leverage some of those economic uh, cluster effects. I mean, it's a good counterpoint to the whole concept of a charter city. Like if you look at, I'm not sure if you are familiar with what Akon is trying to do in Senegal, but he's trying to launch his own basically his own city with its own cryptocurrency. And so he secured a huge, I think I want to say a hundred million dollar credit line from China to start. And and when I look at something like that, it's like, you know, what, like why why not just invest all of those resources into the capital city of Dakar or, or or like an already established city because you're just investing so much into infrastructure from scratch and, and there's no guarantee that it's even going to be successful. And so that's my only concern with the concept of charter cities where it's like takes so much capital and resources and human energy to actually get this off the ground. When if you look at like, what if you redirected that all into the capital city that's already there, you know, which, which is better for the country in the long run? I guess it's, it's yet to be seen. Um, but I do want to finish this off. I want to make sure I know you're super, super passionate about uh, Lebanon, about Beirut. Um, so I do just kind of want to finish off with, uh, just hearing your insights on really what's, I mean, what's going on there right now and what's kind of a, in your mind, what's a positive vision for the future in Lebanon over the next five years? Sure. Just before that, I would love to say, uh, I'd love to kind of give you a tangential thought on what you were saying. For sure. The background, I actually studied political philosophy in college. I'm not a tech, I didn't study anything related to technology. And oftentimes my lens on life is, is colored by these, this reading that I've done in my time. So for me, this what Akon is doing makes me think about the privatization of what things things that governments used to do, right? And it it made me think the the, the time when I felt this most recently was the success of Tesla in launching these people into space. Sorry, not Tesla, SpaceX, uh, getting these the Americans, these two Americans, into the space shuttle for the first time in you know since 2011. And the difference is that before it was NASA, and now it's the private sector that's doing it. And um, in the same way that Akon is kind of privatizing city management and SpaceX is privatizing space exploration, um, I think that there is a big question that we need to ask ourselves about the roles of, of corporations in our lives. And, and also, what does that mean for our future in terms of exploring this new asset of space or how to build cities that can be equitable or, or designed well? Or, or how do we how regulate equity and access to space when access is uh, through private sector companies? I think about these things a bunch, and I think it's it's an, an interesting thing to think about. Anyways, total non sequitur, as I mentioned. <laughs> but um, about Lebanon, so Lebanon is going through a, a double crisis right now. 
which is uh, in October 17, um, driven by a tax on WhatsApp that the government was uh, considering or was about to implement, people went to the streets and we and ignited a, a series of protests that eventually led to the resignation of the government and a significant political shift in the, in the country. Mm. But that also triggered, uh, unfortunately, a long-time fiscal crisis that the country was experiencing. Lebanon is one of the highest countries in terms of debt per capita in the world. I think we're number two or number three. And the government had been continuing to manage its debt by encouraging the Lebanese diaspora and foreign investors to continue to put their dollars in Lebanon at very high interest rates. And with the upheaval that took place, with the fleeing of dollars and the shaking in the confidence in the economy, we've had a huge pressure on the Lebanese lira and a devaluation. Today in the, in the unofficial uh, market, it has been devalued by 70%. There are de facto or kind of informal capital controls, what people can withdraw from their banks, etc. And uh, the government has, for the first time in its history, publicly announced that it is defaulting on its sovereign debt and is seeking an IMF bailout, which, as you know, you know, often comes with very a lot of fiscal austerity and challenging measures uh, if the government chooses to take it. And that was October, November, December. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people in the streets. And then, then you get hit by the COVID crisis, which sends everybody home. The protesters are off the streets. Uh, but uh, the economic crisis worsens. Uh, businesses that were still operating after a fashion, like food and beverage and service economy, tourism completely shot now, uh, which is you know one of the sources of income for the Lebanese economy. And so that's really added fuel to the fire and exacerbated the, the pain in the current economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, some of the some of the government support programs, like the Circular Three Three One that I told you about, uh, is at risk. We, I'm a partner in a in a joint venture. I saw that you interviewed Ahmed Elfi before on on the podcast from Sawadi Ventures, and they have Flat Six Labs. I'm not sure if you talked much about Flat Six. I, I am familiar. I mean, we, we we mostly just kind of went deep into the Egypt ecosystem. Well, so Ahmed's an, an investor, and he is, uh, and he and his partner have set up Flat Six Labs which is a regional accelerator program in multiple countries. And we are their joint venture partners in Lebanon for Flat Six Labs. And we've invested in about 40 companies here in our joint venture. And so like many investors, I think we're triaging, everybody's triaging. We're trying to figure out how to help them. But that vantage point, we also see uh, companies are struggling. The joint venture that we have is supported by the Circular 331 Central Bank Program. The Central Bank Program is struggling. It's unclear what the fate of the program will be moving forward. And that would result in a big contraction in the availability of funding for, for, for startups in the country. The inability to access capital has really hurt these companies. So they can't access dollars. It means they can't pay for basic things like uh, their, their web hosting or their digital marketing, uh, you know, promoted ads on whatever platforms they're doing. And so it's just been extremely challenging for them. Investor confidence in investing in Lebanese startups with the current political and economic circumstances has, has been pretty low. So it's a really tough time. The Lebanese startups are unfortunately facing this double double whammy. And um, I think the, the, the good thing, the Lebanese community in the diaspora is trying to help as much as possible. You're seeing the, the diaspora and, and Lebanese abroad trying to invest in these companies or support them, providing them more runway. 
we're talking to a lot of companies to see, you know, how can the, the, the investors and the ecosystem, at least how can we take some of the startups that are most likely to succeed or, or survive and help them extend their runway and, and survive further. Mm. So this is one of the things that we're trying to see how can we help those companies with. But it's a tough time. And I think it's a tough time for startups everywhere. Maybe the last thing I'll mention, we launched a report recently with Wanda, which is also one of the oldest ecosystem players in the region, founded by Fadi Randur, who I mentioned was the first super angel in the region. And we surveyed 250 startups. Um, 70% of those startups have seen a hit on their, their revenues or potential revenues. 50% said that the, that was substantial. Substantial drop in revenues, suspension or closure. 50%. Wow. Um, 50% of companies said they have runway of less than six months. So urgent intervention is needed to support those companies. And uh, there's one last statistic I wanted to give you. 50% of startups have said that the funding environment for them, the uh, COVID crisis has affected their funding round, whether it's uh, half of those, so about 25%, their the VCs decided to postpone funding, valuation decreased, VCs not interested in investing in their sector anymore, and VCs have become more selective or slower. Uh, all of those uh, roll up into 50% uh, of all startups. Omar, remember I started this off with saying I need a, I need a positive outlook for the next five years? Yeah, I'm sorry I couldn't be that positive <laughs> outlook. Or you know what? Maybe I, can, maybe I can you know wrap it up with saying that what I started with, which is I actually started my company in the wake of the last financial crisis. I lost my job right. and I had nothing to lose and I started my business. And that's the beginning of a new story. And I think there's going to be a huge amount of innovation. COVID is going to require so many people to find solutions to so many new problems. Valuations are going to come back to earth. And a lot of people were looking at valuations that were really, really high. Investors are going to find more promise in this asset class. So I think actually there's a lot of promise, uh, but we need to get out of the short-term environment. And that promise may not be for the companies that are here now. It may be that it's going to be a new set of companies that emerge after this crisis. But I think we are about to see a huge wave of innovation that's going to you know, take us to the next level. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. I remember I saw there was a, there was a, I guess it was in the middle of a protest in, in Beirut, but there was these six guys that were just, um, recreating the Ghana, the Ghana dancing pole bear meme with the, um, with like a big coffin with the Lebanese currency on it. Uh, so I remember seeing that and I was just like, I believe that is a foreshadowing of what's about to happen to a lot of central banks. I mean, we, we've already seen the failure of the regulatory state this year. We're seeing right now the failure of the police and law enforcement ecosystem. I think, you know, in on par, on theme with 2020, the next failure is Federal Reserve policy. I just don't see any way forward besides central bank issued digital currencies. I just, I just think that that's going to be the inevitable outcome of what's happening right now. But I definitely appreciate the, the, the final note of positivity, Omar. Uh, and we'll leave it at that. But Omar, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure to be with you. And thanks so much for having me.